Hello and welcome to this episode of Food to Go, which is brought to you by the Almond Board of California. As ever, I'm joined by my co-host Grace Galler, who is breathing. I was going to say the sniffles, Grace, but that would be unfair. You're breathing a bout of of the dreaded, aren't you? Yeah, I've got COVID at the moment, but it's okay. I'm here for this podcast, so I'm really excited to hear what our amazing guests have had to say about sustainable farming. Yeah, Grace, as you say, sustainable farming is the topic of the day today, in part inspired by my trip to Louisiana before Christmas, which I promise I will stop going on about soon, even though it was an amazing trip. I loved every minute of it. So yeah, sustainable farming today. We've got a really great variety of guests. I'm really looking forward to getting our teeth in some interviews and asking them some difficult questions too, because it is a contentious issue, isn't it? It is, and it's something that always crops up. I was at an event a few weeks ago, and even though it wasn't necessarily about sustainable practices, it always just comes down to that. Like going forward in the food industry, we need to change our like all all sorts of methods just to make them sustainable, just so we can continue to have a food supply in the future. No, absolutely. I mean, agriculture accounts for a massive part, massive part of um, our greenhouse gas emissions. So becoming more efficient sustainable with agriculture less tilling to protect our soil increase um, crop output being specific and precise about our fertilizer use it's all going to be crucial and i'll tell you what when you listen to what our guests have to say today i think you'll leave this episode in uh, i feel a bit more reassured the level of innovation and technology we're seeing in the agricultural sector is just off the charts and do you know what grace it's something that i think people don't necessarily consider i think they think of agriculture as quite backwards stuck in its ways big tractors spurting out diesel and smoke and tilling soil and fertilizer everywhere and that just simply is not the case is it i know and from our conversations i really got a sense of everybody in the industry is really on top of what they're doing at the moment and what still needs to be done to move in the right direction absolutely and the messaging as well is something that's really important but anyway, we're going to spoil we're going to spoil our dinner aren't we as my mum used to say because um we are because we're going on about our guests before giving our uh, audience a chance to hear them so let's let's go through our first interview we were lucky enough to speak to mead and marshall hardwick who farm on the hardwick plantation in northern louisiana i visited the farm as i said just before christmas it was a wonderful day out grace i remember telling you about the size of it which just blew your head off didn't it Mm-hmm, it did you showed me a picture because I just couldn't I couldn't even understand how big the farm would be but I don't even think that picture did it justice to be honest no it didn't um, that was just one tiny corner of it anyway it's a beautiful property we spoke to me to Marshall the morning after Super Bowl Sunday so we were tired I think they were also tired um, understandably I watched it all as we said in our interview, you'll hear in a minute, Grace did not watch it all, and we'll reveal what she tuned in to watch in just a second. Um, and we actually caught Mead on the side of a road on, a way to, on, on his way to some agricultural work, so um, never let it be said that we're not on location at New Food. Right, so let's hear what Mead and Marshall had to say. Mead, Marshall, thank you so much for joining Food to Go. How are you both this morning? We're doing great this morning. Thank you for having us, Josh. No problem at all. Thank you so much for joining us, Mead. I know you're actually pulled over on the side of a road. Um, the work never stops, is it, on a busy farm like yours? So thank you so much for interrupting your day. Not a problem. We're happy to do it. It's just part of our, our lifestyle is, you know, always on the go. We're in a rural area, so you're always going somewhere and you have to do business wherever business is. Absolutely. I was lucky enough to visit your farm at the back end of 2022. So I know just how beautiful it is and I know a little bit about the story. But for our listeners at home, can you paint a picture of 
the Hardwick Plantation. Where is it? What does it look like? And just give us sort of a, a very short history of, of the farm. Marshall, you want to start us off or how do you want to go down the row here? Sure. Yeah. Um, so our farm was purchased by me and my uh, great grandfather back in 1942. Um, he was originally in the oil and gas business looking for some um, new land um, in, in this area. Turns out there was no oil and gas, so he started to pursue agriculture. And his son-in-law really kind of took it by the reins, got organized, um, and, and started to create a farming entity here on the farm. Fast forward to uh, my parents, or our parents, uh, Mary and Jay Hardwick. They moved back in the late 70s as they were about to have Mead. Mead's, Mead's obviously the uh, older sibling. So they started farming in the 80s and starting to really kind of just take this idea of uh, what farming could be. My, my, my dad is not from an agricultural background, more of an education. And he was a teacher at a, a college in, in Dallas, Texas. So he didn't have any real um, idea of how agriculture works. So he kind of had to learn at an early age, uh, at an early time of how farming worked. And it was through this that he kind of learned a lot of thinking outside the box, doing things that weren't kind of customary and farming. And it kind of paid dividends to him through the tough 80s and the 90s. And then Mead and I grew up on the farm, went to the local high school and enjoyed our summers on the farm. We would, we started working, you know, as uh, cutting the grass, running the lawnmowers, eventually working our way up to driving tractors during summer events. Mead and I both went to, went to college. We went to two different colleges, uh, but we both came back at the same time in, in 2014. And again, we started kind of doing the everyday work on the farm, trying to get reacquainted with everything and how it all works. And over the course of several years, we kind of transitioned into more of um, managerial positions. And um, today, Mead and I are still partners with our parents. Our parents are still very involved. Mead and I kind of run the day-to-day -day operations of the farm, getting the goals of what we want for the year, uh, what fields will be planted with what crops we're blessed to be able to grow five different crops here in louisiana um, so we we make those decisions our dad is kind of heads up our marketing efforts and all three of us uh, when time comes we we are on a tractor out in the field trying to get everything um, actually done i know you've told us a little bit about the history of the farm but fast forward a bit could you tell us more about when the farm started to utilize sustainable farming practices I'll jump in here a little bit and kind of pick up where Marshall left off to, to add on to sort of the history there. You know, he mentioned that, that our father was, was not a farmer. His dad was not a farmer, although his father-in-law was a farmer. He started farming out in the 80s when things were, were fairly tough in the U.S. for the ag industry as a whole. Interest rates were extremely high. Prices were low, just, just pretty difficult uh, to start out. So a lot of the sustainability practices that you hear about today, they've been around for a while. Farmers generally try something new to do something better, or they've got a problem. You know, they're very innovative. Um, it, you know, in, innovation is usually centered around solving some challenge. So, you know, some of the cover crop things that, that you know, were brought on were, were not 
these sustainable practices that we think of today, cover crops and, and crop rotation and integrated pest management, trying to use, you know, smaller amounts of fertilizer, smaller amounts of, of uh, chemistries and things like that. You know, that that was not done 30 years ago with the idea of, well, let's be sustainable because our customer in 40 years is going to be interested in this. It was about survival of the farm here in the U.S. You know, how can we spend less money so that we are still able to be in business next year? And then as time evolves, you know, we, we still see today, if you fast forward today, there is a connection. You know, people do care. But the message really is in sustainability around farming and agriculture is that it it was not done in the last 10 years because a consumer wanted it. It's been done for 30, 40, 50 years. Going back to the Dust Bowl, uh, if you think about what caused that, you know, tillage practices have changed to never have that kind of problem again. So sustainability really goes back. I, I couldn't tell you how, how long, but on our farm, particularly, you know, our father started experimenting with cover crops in, in the early 90s, uh, but that was to solve a problem. Uh, it was to, uh, you know, keep erosion. We get a lot of rain right here. We get 60 inches of rain. Not sure what the metric conversion is on that, but we get a lot of rain. So cover crops really help stabilize our soil, keeps it in the field. You know, the idea back then was not, well, let's let's do a cover crop because, you know, uh, somebody said it's more sustainable. It, it is. Uh, and, and that's why we continue to do it today. That's not to say that we don't do it because it it's sustainable. It started out as practices that, that we were trying to solve problems. We went to more technology to try to apply fertilizers differently. We started soil sampling a third of our acres uh, every year to better manage how we apply fertility. If we can not apply fertilizer to certain areas because they're just very strong in fertility, that's money that we've saved, A. And B, we've put out less fertilizer and exposed it to less of the environment and therefore less of it will end up downstream in our, in our lakes and our rivers. And then we've also learned that by the way, if you if you add in a cover crop to your advanced nutrient placements, the cover crops help soak up those nutrients. And then as they decay throughout the next year, they release some of those nutrients. So you're you're it's twofold with those two practices. You're putting less out. You're you're putting it where it, it's needed versus where it's not needed. You're holding it in the field for the future crop. And then as that cover crop breaks down, it can use those nutrients. Technology has become a big part of sustainability, uh, and that is really advancing rapidly where you can use less chemicals. We're we've become very precise with the chemicals that we do use. We have advanced mixing systems where there's virtually no waste. There's virtually no overlap. We're not applying pesticides beyond the field borders. They are very GPS controlled. And we're not unique in that way. There's lots of farmers that are utilizing those technologies. There's, they're, they're readily available. But, you know, the biggest things that we're using from a sustainable platform today would be the use of cover crops, very heavy crop rotation. It's very seldom that one field would be planted in the same thing two, three years in a row. That's proven to break disease pressure. When you don't have diseases, you, have, you don't have to use as much chemical intervention to keep plants healthy. And so uh, crop rotation, crop cover crops, and just utilizing precision uh, fertility placement, uh, that's kind of what we call it. But those are some of the sustainable practices that have been going on starting as early as the, the early 90s on our farm and advancing through today. Mid, I've just done the conversion while you were speaking in terms of that rainfall. I, I never thought there'd be anywhere that was three times as wet as the UK. So that is a lot of rain. I'm, I'm staggered by that. 
I'm also really interested in what you said around the sustainable practices being introduced originally to solve a problem. Is that the way you think that all innovation in this space happens? Do you think that rather than people turning up in kind of government pickups and telling farmers how to how to farm and, and how to look after their soil, do you think farmers are best placed to innovate themselves? Because as you say, they are problem solvers. Absolutely. I, I mean, you know, there's a certain level of guideposts that are, that are needed out there in an industry to make sure that things are not just willy-nilly. But yeah, farmers are wonderful innovators, and it's usually about solving a challenge. You know, we don't have the luxury of setting our own price. You know, we're governed by a marketplace with, you know, now there's some specialty products in there without getting into that. But generally speaking, we are, you know, market driven. So it, it's usually about being the most efficient, most cost uh, effective producer that you can be when you cannot set your price. So it's generally speaking, you know, farmers are going to be much better at self-regulating and in innovating how to solve problems on their own versus a government entity telling us how to do it. I mean, you know, that crushes the innovative spirit that exists in the American farm. You mentioned cost just then. Does it cost more to farm sustainably for you? It kind of depends on exactly what your farming situation is. You know, I mean, if you were to have a, just say a conventional farm um, from the 90s with very low technology, uh, when, if you try to upgrade your tractors and, and the technology in those tractors and your equipment, it can be pretty expensive. The equipment is very expensive. Um, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so that aspect of it is very, um, very expensive. Me and I feel like technology is kind of the future. I mean, you can look in any, any industry and technology is just overwhelmingly powerful and, and useful and innovative. Um, and agriculture is no different. Every year there's a new technology coming out that me and I may or may not try or give it a couple of years uh, to see how well it does. Just like any other industry, things come and go. But um, we've um, adopted to a lot of technology that is pretty inexpensive. Another thing that we do that is uh, we're, we're trying to replace some synthetic fertilizer with more natural organic fertilizer, such as chicken litter. Um, that like that switch is not too terribly expensive, especially today is uh, the price of fertilizer is. That is a, a more organic type, not organic, a natural occurring fertilizer that is released kind of slowly over time, which is not very expensive. The people that use, that put out the, the fertilizer, the chicken litter, um, they're using similar technologies that we are. Um, it, it, it has, it uploads a um, aerial view of the field with different zones that have different rates of the, the fertilizer. And as the, the tractor is going through the field, it'll change based upon what that map says. So that kind of it's, uh, technology is relatively pretty inexpensive, but just completely going from no technology to technology can be very expensive. But a gradual um, change in, in our operation is, is, is obtainable. But if you were also, you know, let's just say you had two operations that were just like ours. One is and they're both technology heavy, which most advanced farms today are. And one was, say, more of a conventional farming tillage practices, that kind of thing. A tillage is very expensive. I mean, outside of 
the erosion and all that. I mean, just just to the act of doing it is expensive. I mean, it burns a lot of diesel. It's labor intensive in terms of the hours put in, certainly not from a physical standpoint. I mean, if, if you just eliminate tillage, if, if you can, and I'm not saying that, as you may, might imagine, with that amount of rainfall, generally speaking, some field is going to get boogered up and you've got to go in there and till it and, and fix it. But if you can eliminate tillage in areas, I mean, that is sustainable and you didn't spend any money. So, no, that's not more you know, costly. Uh, cover crops, they're not free. That is an added expense. But there are some gains picked up with that. There are, you know, you increase the soil carbon or the carbon in the soil. You you can increase organic matter, water holding capacity in dry land areas. So, you know, there's give and take, but it's it's not wildly more expensive. But um, some aspects are, and some aspects are are not. I don't know if we answered your question effectively, but that's our take on it. So even though there are there's give and take when it comes to uh, technological advancements with sustainability, why do you think it's so important for you to market yourselves as a sustainable farm? You know, fast forward to today, right, from, from why we might have started sustainable practices to today, the consumer, uh, at least uh, we believe, or we may not be having this conversation, but the consumer seems to be much more interested in where their clothing comes from, where their food comes from, knowing, you know, how it was grown, what that farm family is like, um, you know, knowing the people that produced it. It seems to be that the public is going towards a more personal or wanting to have a more personal relationship, whatever that means, you know, just more in-depth knowledge of, of where the things come from that, that they're eating, that they're wearing. And so as a business, we sell a product at the end of the day. And we need to market ourselves appropriately, but we're also doing it for the right reasons. It's, you know, if, if the consumer all of a sudden decided they didn't care about sustainability, I mean, we didn't start doing sustainability because of the customer. We're still going to do it because it's our farm, it's our family, it, it's our livelihood. And if we can be more sustainable, we'll make sure that the farm is still here for another generation. So those things will still carry on. But, uh, you know, from a business perspective, we need to pay attention to what our customers want. Mead Marshall, when I visited the farm, I, I was so struck by the fact there were black bears just roaming freely on the farm. And that's probably because I grew up in inner city London and uh, the only bears I've seen weren't allowed to roam free. But I was impressed anyway. How important is it to you to protect local wildlife on the farm? We've spoken about cover crops, we've spoken about tillage and targeted fertilizer use, but how important is that is that wildlife aspect to the Hardwicks? Well, I think um, you spoke about the black bears, just talking about them specifically. In the 80s and 90s, the black bear were on the endangered species list for Louisiana. And our father was a very instrumental on trying to restore the population in Louisiana. We take a lot of credit, the farmer does, of producing high quality food in, in, in corn and also leaving um, trees established or even planting um, unproductive farmland into trees and that providing a, a habitat for the black bears. And what we saw over the next 20 years is they had a good source of food, water and shelter and, and, and the population has exploded. So it's starting to grow uh, tremendously. And as you saw, they also like pecans. We got a pecan orchard right by, by our office. They're also eating those nuts. So it just shows how a farm can contribute to the overall 
health of the ecosystem that is, um, you know, on the farm. And so if, if you have a healthy ecosystem on the farm, um, going all the way down to the microorganisms in the soil, as you go up on the, the food chain, if you take care of this microorganism, it'll go all the way up to the black bears, to the white-tailed deers, ultimately to the humans, because the food source is, is healthy, is thriving. It shows a good, healthy farm with lots of trees, lots of clean water. We take extraordinary steps to make sure that the water leaving our farm is cleaner than is clean, um, providing a good source of water for the wildlife. And so our family is very active outdoors. We enjoy seeing it. I mean, it's, it's a treat to drive around the farm and see a black bear and her two, maybe three cubs walking the farm. It, it it's, uh, creates a beautiful scene for us to look at. And so not only that, but it's, it, it's just creating a healthy ecosystem in which all things can, can survive and thrive. It was certainly a treat for me, Marshall, to see black bears. I was told by, by Chad Kassir not to get too close. So I wanted to get right up and up and personal and take a few photos, but I was uh, warned against that, probably revealing my urban roots um, and being laughed at by everyone else. But um, I, I enjoyed it. I, I understand. They're, uh, they're kind of cute, cuddly animals, and it looks like you just want to kind of go get a bear hug from them. But, uh, yeah, they are still wild. I mean, they... You know, they're they're big animals with big claws and big teeth. So we still got to keep your distance. But I agree with you. I mean, I, I want to get as close as I can to them. Absolutely. Just on the subject of Chad, who represents the National Resource Conservation Service in the US, he described your family as, as leaders in terms of the local community. I know that when you presented to us journalists um, at the farm, you had one of your neighbours sit in as well and contributed. It did feel like the Hardwick farm is is a center of innovation for that area of louisiana is that how you see yourselves i'm sure you're gonna be very modest and say no but even if it's not do you think that that kind of leadership is required to, to i suppose get everyone else on the same the same hymn sheet and get everyone on the same journey you know we don't always you know think about ourselves and say you know i'm, I'm a great leader i mean i think those things just sort of evolve out of what happens um you know, I think it's more about just making meaningful contributions, doing what we feel is right, doing what we feel is is good for for our family, for our farm. And if we have some good ideas that people want to take on or, or they see us as being good spokesmen for the industry or spokesmen for our community, you know, we don't, I mean, Marshall and I don't set out to to lead people. I mean, if that happens, that that's great, you know, but the world is ruled by people that just show up and, you know, we just, we just want to show up and, and make a contribution and feel like we're, we're contributing meaningfully to our community, but also our industry. And, and if people feel like, you know, they want us or view us as leaders, that that's great. I mean, that's, and that's a credible honor for Chad to say that um, we are honored by that, you know, and if that makes us leaders, we'll, we'll certainly accept that role as necessary, but that's not a goal for us to, to be leaders. We just want to be good examples. I don't know, Marshall, what do you think? No, I, I, I completely agree with what you said. We've invested in some technologies that have been kind of a bust in our opinion. And um, we share that that information and that knowledge with other farmers. And we're constantly talking with other farmers and we get some ideas from other farmers. So, uh, you know, I think it's a group effort. Agriculture is very unique and um, blessed to have so many people that want to help each other. 
And, um, you know, as, as Mead said, we, we're just trying to be good examples um, along with a lot of other farmers. And we appreciate the, for Chad to say that we are leaders in the local farming community, but, um, you know, that's, our goal is to better ourselves and help better other farmers that may benefit from something that we may have discovered or found or learned along the way. Marshall and Mead, going forward, how can the agricultural industry work together to share knowledge and experiences? Well, podcasts like this have, have been uh, very useful. I know Mead and I listen to a lot of podcasts. Mead's got a, a little bit longer drive to the farm for me. So he he's always telling me, you need to listen to this podcast, listen to this podcast. You know, social media has changed the agricultural world, uh, like many, many industries. Um, and we have a lot of local or regional and national uh, magazines and newsletters that, that are very beneficial that help to, uh, you know, help to describe new practices. I'm, I'm actually leaving tomorrow morning to go to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It's a uh, cover crop convention um, and it's bringing people from all over the Mid-South, Southeast to uh, one place, 230 people. And all we're gonna talk about is cover crops. So it's events like this, getting farmers uh, interested in, in uh, joining or not joining, but uh, attending conferences is always beneficial, in my opinion, and just continuing to tell our story. Farmers are pretty introverted. Um, and up till you know, 2000, 2005 or so, there was no internet, so to speak, where we were able to tell our story. And so we were isolated out in rural America um, and, and no one knew where the food came from. And, and if a bad reputation for farmers and our practices got established, well, you know, it, it, how long it takes to debunk a uh, false um, statement, it, it can be detrimental. So I think it's important for, like Mead said, to show up and uh, tell our story in, in any platform that you can, whether it's uh, the local school board meeting or if you're, you're able to go with a national um, organization to like Washington, D.C. and speak to representatives, um, always take that advantage and and, and tell your story and tell what good you're doing and how you're trying to change and why you're trying to change and just continue to tell your story. But, and Marshall said, just staying involved. I mean, it takes effort to be involved, but the advent of the internet and social media has shrunk the world tremendously. We've been very fortunate to be involved with national organizations, not just local. And it's the same group of people that, that show up. I mean, and so it takes, it takes people just to show up and stay involved and, um, tell the story because you just, we don't want someone else telling it for us. Cause as Marshall said, it may not be the right one and it takes a long time to undo the wrong story. So just getting involved as Marshall mentioned, agriculture in itself is isolating because we don't farm in a city around thousands of people. We are in the middle of nowhere. And it's an industry that lends itself to being not only physically isolated, but can be mentally isolating. And so just staying involved is the biggest thing. And, and our industry needs involvement, just like any industry, but, but ours particularly needs involvement. Marshall Mead, thank you so much for your time. Um, I don't know about you, Grace, but I could sit here and, and talk to Marshall Mead for another hour um, about this. It's really, really interesting stuff, and it's such a new and ref refreshing perspective. But Mead, I know you're on a side of a road somewhere in Louisiana, so uh, I'll let you get back to your day. I'm sure you're very, very busy. The work never stops, does it? So thank you so much for joining us. No problem. We're glad to be a part of it. <laughs>
Yeah, thank you, Grace. Thank you, Josh. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, babe. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Well, yeah, first off, I was going to say I'm so jealous that you've actually been because hearing about everything they do just makes me want to go. Yeah, it's it's paradise. It's beautiful. And I went on a beautiful, clear, crisp day. I don't know if I told you about the Louisiana weather when I went. It was so strange. It was like 23, 24 degrees one day. And the next day I went to Har- the Hardwick Farm. It was like like in single figures um, and windy. So it was cold, but it was so clear. You say 23, people listening from America might think that's actually quite cold. But for us, that is like go to the swimming pool weather. I say this to our American colleagues all the time. I've got no point of reference to Fahrenheit. So that could be like really hot or freezing. 70? 73. 73 is. Oh, yay. <laughs> Someone was listening. Someone was listening in school. Yeah, 73. So quite a warm day. It does get hotter um, down in uh, Baton Rouge. But then we went upstate to uh, the Hardwick farm and it was cold but yeah it's beautiful and it's massive as well I think I showed you that picture of sort of how big the farm is yeah yeah ginormous ginormous but yeah it's a, it's a beautiful place I remember you saying to me I can't even put into context how big this farm is like it's just impossible for us to fathom how huge it is it is for us Brits who are used to sort of living in rabbit hutches um, it's massive it's absolutely ginormous and they're, and they're they're doing well. You heard uh, Mead Marshall say that, um, oh, I can't remember if it was Marshall and Mead said that um, one of them's got a longer drive to work than the other one. So they have to listen to a podcast. And that's just from one point of the farm to the other. So, yeah, that's how big it is. Look, it's a great place and they're doing some great work. A few bits to take away. I thought it was really interesting that um, when Mead spoke about sustainability practices originating from adversity and from problem solving. I've heard that before, but it was just interesting the way he put it. I don't know if you sort of picked that up as well. Do you know what was really great to hear? That they were using sustainable practices, and I hate to say it before it was a trend, but before it became popular and something that the consumers kind of look for when they're shopping, it's great to know that they were already implementing it and kind of refining their skills before it kind of took off. Because as as Mead said, and as I've heard from a few different people, when we, we ask a question, don't we, all the time here, especially at the moment when times are tough, we always ask, oh, well... You know, when margins get a bit slimmer and a bit tighter, is sustainability going to go out the window? And what Mead was saying is no, because it costs a lot of money to till a field. Like that costs a lot of money, costs a lot of diesel, takes hours, which is is also money. So if you could do that less, why wouldn't you? And the same goes for for cover crops. Um, If if you don't have to use, if you can cut your fertiliser usage, especially at the moment, it's more sustainable and it's also a massive in terms of sheer finances, it's a it's a much better decision for the business. So really interesting. And as he said, those kind of practices were born and developed and honed to solve problems for survival. Farmers are real innovators. And I think at their core, they're problem solvers. They're faced with problems every single day and they solve them. And I think it's easy for us to forget that. But we're so far detached from that world, especially living in cities, as I said. Like I said, I was up for going to Trader Black Bears. Honestly, I was walking towards <laughs> them going, can we get a bit closer and take a photo? Do you know what? That would have been me as well. I would have absolutely been with you on that. Yeah, and Chad, who was um, stood next to me when we were we were chatting and, and taking photos of the bears, he had to say to me, yeah, I probably wouldn't go any closer if I were you, actually. And I was like, oh, okay, understood, understood. But yeah, I'd have been up there giving them a cuddle and probably wouldn't have been here now recording the podcast. How close did you get to them? Oh, miles away, like a long way away. Oh, <laughs> see, I'm picturing like two metres away. Oh, no, 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 no. Like, they were in the distance. So, yeah, I couldn't really tell. But 
I must admit, that was good enough for me. It was incredible. I mean, they they said that they were on the farm, and I was like, well, it'll be my luck. I won't see any. And then literally, we walked outside, and they were like, oh yeah, there's a couple of there. Look, and you could just see them in the trees, sort of having a forage. It was incredible. It was a real privilege. But yeah, amazing work that the hardworks are doing. As Marshall said, they actually use extensive cover crops, and they rotate their crops like often, so they're really getting the most out of their land and their and their soil without over exploiting it. The other thing that I want to pick up on, and we've not got much time in this episode to do this, but I thought, I mean, quote of the day, probably quote of the year goes to Mead Hardwick, which is the world is ruled by people that show up. I absolutely love that. I want that on a, on a wall somewhere in the office. I think we should get it printed out and we'll put it on our desk at work. Yeah, the people that show up. And it's so true, isn't it? I mean, there's two sides to that. It's not, you can't just show up and sit there. You can't. But the point he's making is that the people that get involved and make the effort are the ones that succeed, right? Mm-hmm. And I think with their knowledge and like, background in sustainable farming they can apply what they've learned and teach other people and influence them to maybe farm in the same way or take some of their ideas and use them in their businesses as well absolutely and i thought it was really interesting um again mead said that it's, a, it's an isolating business and it's true especially in the us and i'm sure in other big land masses as well it's not like in the uk where i mean our farms are big don't get me wrong but when you go to the countryside and you see a, and there's a you know, I don't know if you've been on a farm and the farmer says oh yeah these are my fields but then that fence there that's my neighbor's land and you can often see your neighbor's farming you cannot see the next person at the hardwick farm you can't see the next property it's just too big so it is isolating as mead said it's isolating physically but it's also isolating mentally and you probably end up in a bit of an echo chamber sometimes you do the same things year on year on year on year because you've always done them and nobody else is there to challenge you but as both mead and marshall said spreading the word things like this going to the cover crop convention in baton rouge are great ways to do that and i I actually when i was there I, i discussed this with chad i said look uh like what happened how do you spread this kind of knowledge and he said well you you forget that these are rural towns there's only a couple of say hardware shops in the local vicinity so you'll bump into fellow farmers at the hardware shop at the coffee shop at the supermarket most people know each other i think it was me that said at school board meetings etc you, you kind of get to know your community and, and you end up discussing different techniques there and everyone is i suppose in a i mean i mean it's in a positive way everyone's nosy Everyone has a little look and goes, oh, yeah, how's that cover cropping that you were doing? I'm sure they all had a big laugh when they first sort of come up with the scheme. And then now they're maybe, oh, I wonder how that's getting on. And then they try it themselves. So, yeah, it's interesting how ideas spread. Um, I mean, since, as, as Marshall said, since sort of the late 2000s, obviously multimedia and digital media has, has massively aided that. But really interesting. And I just love that quote, the world is real by people that show up. And the Hardwicks do show up. As I said, they put the work in, put the hours in. And just getting yourself in front of people and getting yourself in their situations to share knowledge is really, really crucial. But yeah, they're doing some amazing work. I hope that we've showed you just a brief insight into what goes on at the Hardwick's farm. And also, maybe challenge some some stereotypes. Grace, I know we spoke about this, didn't we? There are some, I suppose, unfair stereotypes around farming that it's quite a, a stuck-in-its-ways sector. Yeah, and it was really great to hear from them that some sustainable farming methods aren't as expensive as you think. Yes, there are the big technological changes, but there are also smaller things that different farms can do that can really make a big impact for the environment. Absolutely. Um, Just on equipment, again, you would not believe how expensive these pieces of equipment are. I know that you probably don't think that they're 100 quid on eBay, but 
some of these tractors and and, and, and combines are worth millions of pounds millions really? yeah it's a long-term investment and that's what the guys were saying it's it's you can't think year to year if you're introducing these practices it matters it's not a case of we'll give that a go and see how it turns out because you might have a payment on the combine harvest that you've got to pay off that crop has to work so so many of these innovations are born out of out of um adapting to survive and, and, and making sure that you're still there next season so yeah really really interesting but as Mead said there are some bits that aren't very expensive at all which I'm sure many other farmers around the world, not just in the in the US, can adapt. But yeah, I love speaking to Mead and Marshall. And as we as we said, Mead pulled over on the side of the road because there's no rest for the wicked. It's busy. I know. It was great that he took the time to speak to us. And it was really great to see their drive and determination in the farming sector. Absolutely. And to speak to us on the Monday morning after Super Bowl well Sunday as well. I know. I know. I mean, we were both up watching it in the middle of the night, but at least they took the time to speak to us after a very, what I'm sure would be a very heavy Sunday. Yeah, I'll just um, qualify that, Grace, because I think we may be using a bit of uh, poetic license there. You didn't stay up to watch the Super Bowl, did you? What did you do? Tell the listeners. I stayed up to watch Rihanna's first performance in seven years. No, you got up, you got up in the middle of the night to watch Rihanna, then went back to bed again. You missed one of the greatest games of American football of all time. But Rihanna was great. It wasn't the Seattle Seahawks, Josh. That's why. Is that your team? Mm-hmm. Have I never said this? No, I didn't know you liked American football. Anyway, <laughs> we're getting wildly off track and we've got so much content to pack into this episode. So let's hear from our next guest. Yeah, so I really enjoyed what Mead and Marshall had to say, Grace. I thought they were fantastic. And as I said earlier, um, so grateful that Mead could pull over on the side of the road to speak to us. It just goes to show how busy they are, doesn't it? Like, the, the, it never stops for them. I know, the grind literally never stops, but his insight was really interesting and really valuable for our listeners to hear about exactly what goes on day to day at the farm. Exactly. And speaking of valuable insight, we've got some more coming for you because, as I said at the top of the episode, this one's sponsored by the Almond Board of California. And we were lucky enough to speak to Harbinder Mann, who's Associate Director, Trade Marketing and Stewardship at Almond Board of California. And she was joined by Mary Hahi, who's Pippin Nuts Operations and Sustainability Director. Now, Pippin Nut are a producer, a retailer. Um, that work with the Almond Board of California. And I thought it was really, really powerful to hear them both speak about the relationships they forge, the work they're doing when it comes to being sustainable and reducing food waste, which we know is a huge part of in, in increasing our efficiency with agriculture and food. So I'm doing it again, Grace. I'm doing it again. I'm giving far too much away before we hear what our guests have to say. Um, so I'll shut up and we'll hear from our uh, from our sponsors. We hear often how healthy, natural and how, how in demand almonds are as an ingredient at the moment. There's an expectation from consumers that they're sustainable though, isn't there? Can you speak a bit to that? Are almonds a sustainable ingredient? And what would you say to consumers that are perhaps concerned at the moment that their, 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 their favourite milk or their favourite ingredient isn't as sustainable as it could be? Well, I guess for your readers and anyone that doesn't know who the Almond Board of California is, maybe just I'll start there because we are a, um, a grower enacted federal marketing order representing all the growers, the handlers and the processors. And so this is definitely true. While it's expectation, it's a responsibility we take very seriously because over 90 percent of California almond farms are family run farms. So our farmers are genuinely stewards of the land because they want to be able to pass this land on to the next generation. So they are doing so in a way that's 
going to minimize the impact for the environment. And we've set up some really clear goals to you know, show our intent when it comes to sustainability. We have um, measurable ambitions in areas like responsible water use and harvesting, as well as zero waste. And that's where we see a real focus, particularly now in the current climate. So when you're sourcing almonds from California, you can be assured that they're grown responsibly and we're proud of that. And just an example here, you know, so the industry has invested in really decades of production research, which forms the basis of a self-assessment voluntary program called the California Almond Stewardship Platform. It's a real mouthful. But the platform is composed of a series of self-guided questions on grower almond practices, agricultural calculators, and really a host of resources for the growers. And the California Almond community has uh, worked with Sustainable Ag Initiative, SAI, and their farm sustainability assessment to benchmark the program. And we benchmarked to gold. So great question to kick off with. Thank you. You mentioned there about the almond board's ambition to be zero waste. How does the almond industry stack up compared to the agricultural industry as a whole with this? Consumers can feel good about what they're buying when they know that growers put everything to use. And we know that food waste is a big issue at the consumer and retail level, but it's also a big problem at the farm level. A recent report released by the World Wildlife Fund, UK and Tesco, back in 2021, found that global food waste on farms amounted to about 1.2 billion tonnes per year, which is over 15% of all food produced globally. So if there's an opportunity then to then put all of those streams, even in the orchard, to good use, it's a real benefit. So almonds are a great low-waste choice for manufacturers and consumers, thanks to their long shelf life. But we're also leading the way uh, with all the hulls and the shells and the tree biomass and putting everything uh, that we have on the orchard to, to use and have secondary sources for those uses. Like the, the hulls and shells can be used as um, feed for cattle and bedding for the poultry industry. The trees themselves at the end of their lives can be ground up and um, deep ripped back into the soil, um, which is an act called whole orchard recycling but there is a lot that consumers can feel good about. I mean, I feel like we've just dived in with two absolutely massive questions. There's no chit-chat here, is there? There's no chance for you to catch your breath or have a sip of your coffee. It's two absolute stormers to begin with. And I'm afraid, I feel like I'm going to ask another one. That zero-waste ambition is, is admirable and it's, it's exactly what I'm sure all of our listeners want to be hearing. But what does that mean in practical terms? What, what does that mean for ABC and, and for the almond sector as a whole? What are some sort of tangible... I suppose, procedures, methods that ABC are implementing at the moment that consumers can, can hang on to? So the industry is committed to achieving. So we set goals, like you know, lots of companies are setting goals. We set goals to achieve zero waste by 2025. And it's a theme that you're hearing in the investment, for the industry at least, in terms of uh, research is a theme. And this is also an area where we're investing a lot of research. So already we can say that, you know, we're, we're, uh, as I said earlier, that the hulls and shells are going to things like livestock feed and bedding. But beyond that, we're investing in developing more uses for these crop products, you know, which has led us to some really exciting discoveries. So in terms of the hulls and shells to cultivate things like mushrooms. So peat is a limited resource, but you can cultivate mushrooms using hulls and shells. We can see that they be, can be formulated as a coffee replacement or an ingredient in nutritional bars. So we're currently partnering with a company here in the Bay Area um, in California called Matson, 
to look at what else can you do with uh, with hulls and shells. And so for the almond hulls, uh, we can convert that into a food ingredient in its own right. And some prototypes that we worked on recently, there's a performance bar, nutrition bar, with 15% of almond hulls added, which provide fiber and antioxidants, a high fiber bread. So hulls are an excellent source of fiber. And then a tea beverage. So you can roast the almond hulls, grind them and brew a tea, a coffee replacement. So there's a lot of those on the on the market that we've discovered along this process. And you can replace up to 20 percent of coffee beans in a traditional coffee and then beer. You can you can create almond beer replacing the hops in brewing beer. So it's really an exciting time um, uh, regards to the ambition to be zero waste has led to all these kind of innovative opportunities that can be leveraged within the food and beverage industry. And as much as consumers do strive to be sustainable, innovation can make it easy for them. So products that are innovative and sustainable are really a win-win, and this is where almonds can play. So you have to be innovative uh, when thinking about zero waste. So some exciting things coming. Harbinder, when it comes to almonds and food manufacturing specifically, how can you ensure that they're not wasted in that process? So the great thing about almonds is that there's a reliable supply and when stored correctly, they have a relatively long shelf life when you compare them to other foods. So they're not going to go off anytime soon and they retain all their health benefits, which is really important because increasingly consumers are looking for more healthy snacks and food and want to understand the benefits of what they're eating. What are they putting in their bodies? So a 30 gram serving of almonds, for example, gives you four grams of fiber six grams of plant protein, they're high in vitamin E and magnesium, and there have been over 300 published research studies into the health benefits of almonds. So they're a valuable ingredient for the food manufacturing industry. And we are also seeing the demand for consumers, for manufacturers to develop healthy food that meets their indulgence needs. It needs to be tasty. All food needs to be tasty and exciting. So another reason why almonds are a low waste food is that they're so versatile. We, there are more than 14 different forms and formats of almonds. So whether it's sliced, diced, ground butter, ground, almond protein, to name a few. And they you know, really play um, needs for product developers. They're looking for new and creative things and foods to use. But when almonds, when you think of almonds, you know, it grounds people into they understand what they are. So these new forms allow them to play within a safe space and they can you know, provide all kinds of sensory attributes like crunch or a binder um, or looking to create clean label kind of or gluten free f- uh, foods um, and multiple diets that they work with as well. So, you know, they really can be used to update formulations or reformulate for new audiences and diets. Mary, I just want to bring you in here. Um, I know you've been sat on the sidelines listening to me and Grace grill Habenda for the last seven, eight minutes or so. Um, hopefully it won't be as harsh on you. Do you want to just tell us a little bit, first of all, how Pippa Nut works with the onboard of California? So yeah, for anyone who doesn't know, Pippa Nut were founded in 2015 and almond butter was one of our first products made by our founder, Pip. And we've always sourced from California, where 80% of the world's almonds are from. And we have been working with suppliers in California since we started. But for the first time last year, myself and Pip traveled to California to meet some of those suppliers. And we actually met Harbinder on the ground, which was brilliant. So that was kind of the start of our real connection with the Almond Board of California. And we've been working with them ever since. 
Amir, can I just ask you, how has consumer attitudes to sustainability impacted what you're doing at Pip and Nut? I know that almonds in particular have come under quite significant scrutiny from consumers in recent months. Has that changed your the way the way you operate or have you always prided yourself on sustainability? Yeah, I think consumers are definitely starting to expect more from brands and Pippinut certified as B Corp in 2019. And ever since then, we've definitely started to react more to consumer concerns and what's happening in the market and also fleshing out our, our sourcing and our sustainability journey. So I think we were continuing to buy from our, our almonds from California, but the, we're starting to go into more and more detail and get closer to our suppliers out in California to understand how they're working and and make sure that we're able to tell some of those stories and some of the positive practices that are being used in California with our consumers. Mary, can you tell us a little bit about how you ensure that Pip and Nuts brand values are reflected in your processes? So being in, in terms of being sustainable and responsibly sourcing ingredients? Business is a force for good. And sourcing is a really important pillar within our sustainability strategy given you know 90% of our ingredients are peanuts and almonds and our aim is to uh, reach 100% responsibly grow in nuts by 2025 and something that we've spent quite a lot of time on is thinking about how to quantify or uh, measure responsibly grown and that can be very different for lots of different commodities um, whether you're looking at dairy or poultry or almonds or uh, corn and one thing that we we wanted to identify was a framework for assessing responsibly grown and something that we came across was the FSA which Harbinder mentioned um, and it's a tool for assessing fi- farming practices on the ground. So instead of you know creating our own pip and nut assessment for uh, sustainable farming, we wanted to use an existing tool that was familiar to the industry. And the good thing is that the FSA is used across the Argentinian peanut industry, and it's also benchmarked to CASP. So something like that is really helpful for us translating our our ambitions into reality when it comes to our procurement and identifying suppliers and farmers out in California who are using those practices. So we can start to say, you know, we want to source from suppliers who are using CASP and that provides a language for us to discuss with them, you know, what's happening on the ground. And being out in California allowed us to see CASP in action and we saw loads of brilliant practices and and learned a lot about irrigation, bee health, pest management and the almost zero waste which Harbinder mentioned and I think it's it's really inspiring to see the farmers talk about what's happening because as she said so many of these farmers are multi-generational and it's in their best interests to make sure that the land and the crops are here for the long term. So they're the number one stewards of the land and we want to work with them and trust them. They're the experts and see how Pippinot can help. And I think it's all about a conversation with the people on the ground and the growers. Us as manufacturers, we have ambitions and plans, but realistically, we just want 
to enable them to do the best job that they can and make sure that our, our plans are aligned. Mary, I know we run out of time rapidly here, but I just want to sneak in one last question, if you don't mind, judging on something you, you, you mentioned just then. How important is it for consumers to have one unified scheme, I suppose, to, to align with? Um, you mentioned the scheme that you're using to ensure sustainable sourcing and sustainable practice. Do you think that as an industry, we make it easy enough for consumers to identify companies that are doing the right thing from companies that perhaps, um, shall we say, aren't doing everything they could? It's a very good question. And I don't think it is fully there yet, but there are so many great schemes that are starting to become more consumer friendly, whether it be Fair Trade, B Corp, you know, there's lots of brands doing carbon labeling on pack. So we're starting to get there and, and consumers are really learning a lot, but it's definitely there's there's no one size fits all and I don't think there ever will be but things like CASP things like B Corp it it starts to connect people with signposting for better which is something that we're we're really working on as well. Havinder Murray thank you so much for your time and um, big thanks to Havinder as well for getting up early um, you wouldn't catch me doing a podcast interview before a coffee so I do really appreciate that. Wonderful thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. No problem at all speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Another really good interview. I really enjoyed what, what was said there. And again, I, I came away feeling a bit optimistic, um, especially when Hubinder spoke about the food waste aspect of sustainability. And I think it's so easily overlooked, isn't it? We speak so much about precision agriculture, about emissions, about um, yeah, fertilizer usage. We almost forget the wastage part. And um, once that, that sticks with me i'm still thinking about it now 1.2 billion tons of food waste on the farm 15 percent of all food production even if you could make a small dent into that that would make a massive difference wouldn't it i know and i think when you hear a figure as big as that you almost think like the mountain's too big to climb like you don't even know where to start but it is clear that they're making steps in the right direction to actually tackle the problem of food waste and i think it's really good that harbinder put some concerns to rest about the sustainability factor of almonds i was in a coffee shop the other week with my friend and she tried to order almond milk and they said that they don't stock it anymore because it's not sustainable but hearing from harbinder you can really hear that there's actually a lot of stuff going on in the industry to kind of counteract that claim. I think they're working hard, aren't they? The, the issue with almonds, which we didn't get time to put to Harvinder, um, is water usage, which is still a concern for lots of people. But as Harbinder rightly pointed out, the shelf life of almonds is such that they don't go off. They don't. It's not like a joint of beef or a head of lettuce where you've got a week to eat it. You can buy a pack of almonds and have them in, in your cupboard for, for, for an awful long time. So I suppose how stable they are to produce is, is, is a question. I mean, they're certainly not the only food that requires intensive um, intensive water usage to, to, to grow. I mean, we've spoken about avocados on new food in the past and the problems there. But if they're on the shelves for a lot longer, then then in a way that does offset it slightly there are still some some concerns to answer I, I don't think we can sit here and say oh it's fine they're best best food in the world for stability away you go however i do as you said i think i've been to put some concerns to rest and also speaking about reusing using the almond holes using the shells in different products 
ensure that yes, even if they do require a lot of resources to, to, to grow and to produce, making sure that you utilize every aspect of that plant, which it sounds like the ABC are encouraging their members to do and they're doing themselves. So it was another positive interview, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I was actually going to say that I'm fascinated that almond, what people would consider as waste, but can be used to cultivate like mushrooms, being skincare, coffee, like that's amazing. I just didn't know that. It is amazing. I'm not saying it's not, but I'm never, I never cease to be amazed by this industry. When we speak to such talented people that we do and they come on and tell us things like this, you're right. It always, always blows my mind. Um, the ingenuity. I mean, when it comes to food waste, again, we've got a podcast on food waste coming up. So I'm sure we'll discuss this in a lot more, in a bit more depth. Um, I was in a well-known supermarket the other day and saw Toast Ale in the supermarket for the first time. For those that don't know, Toast Ale is um, crafted from leftover bread. And again, I just, I love seeing things like that. I love it. Um, I did buy some because um, I wasn't drinking that day. But this, the concept, as you say, using almond husks to, to cultivate mushrooms or to using skincare and coffee, using leftover bread to, 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 to brew beer, it's such an in ingenious and innovative industry. So the problems are big. We're not just cheerleaders. We do have to understand, don't we, that there are some cases to answer. But speaking to, to people like Hubbinder, really, really, I, I, I do say, I think does bring a bit of optimism. And I thought, again, Marie's contributions were really, really interesting too. Her point around consumers demanding more. I thought that was fascinating because we always ask this, don't we? We always ask, is it chicken or egg? Is it consumers that drive change or is it up to businesses? Well, consumers buy what's put in front of them. I don't know how you saw that. Yeah, well, I actually have a stat for you here. So almond milk is actually the most popular milk that isn't dairy milk. So there clearly is, this is according to, to Statista, so don't, don't quote me, quote them. But there clearly is a demand for it. And I think even wait, maybe like five, ten years ago, you wouldn't really see dairy-free options in coffee shops, for example. So there is demand, especially for almond milk. But you're right, people are going to reconsider their options, especially with sustainability in mind. So if they think that there isn't sustainable practices going on with the product, they may be less likely to buy it. So the, the demand might be less. No, exactly. Um, it's such an interesting point. And I I suppose you've kind of put the debate to bed there because it's clearly popular. What will be interesting now is where we start to drop off of that from the perceived unsustainability. Um, is that a word? Unsustainability? Unsustainable is a word. So. Unsustainable is a word. Unsustainable, yeah. Unsustainability sounds wrong. Shall I give it a quick Google? Give it a Google while I'm speaking and then you can let me know and I'll think of another word. But maybe... I've lost my train of thought now because you've interrupted me on your grammar. Come on then, is it a word? I'm, I'm, I don't think it is, you know. Right, well, it is now. Um, <laughs> the perceived unsustainability, that'll be at Oxford's word of the year in 2023. The perceived unsustainability of almond milk, whether that will lead to a drop-off um, when we look at that statistic page next year, the years to come, that I suppose will give us the true answer. But you're right, it is popular. Consumers are looking for alternatives. Perhaps it's them that's driven changes. And as Marie said, consumers are demanding more from them. So the pressure's on them to innovate and to, and to improve. And I suppose that's where we want to be, don't we? We want to be in a position where food businesses are offering more new and exciting products that are sustainable and are game-changing to consumers. They in turn gain popularity and then consumers begin to demand more and look at other manufacturers and say, well, why aren't you doing this too? And we drag everybody along with us. We, we all move together. That, for me, feels like a really, really exciting place to be. 
Yeah, it's almost like a rat race. So somebody starts it off and then everybody else follows. But I feel like to be the first pe- or one of the first companies to kind of pave the way, it's always going to be a bit daunting because I feel like a lot of people are waiting in the wings to see what happens and if it's feasible money-wise and if it's popular with consumers. So it's great that Pip and Nut seem to be kind of making changes for themselves uh, in the industry. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing it with culture meat, aren't we? I think with culture meat, a lot of the so-called big boys are just sat waiting to see what happens there but yeah you're right and i thought it was really interesting that marie said her and pip from pip and nuts traveled to california to meet with the abc and hubbinder and see meet some growers meet some producers on the ground that bond that relationship is really important i mean whenever we've spoken to producers of or retailers of commodities whether it be coffee whether it be princes and tomatoes um i paul spoke about that a few episodes back when you go out and you see the farm or you see the production line, you meet the people that are doing it, you have so much more of an in-depth knowledge of how your product is produced and you can shout about it and you can be confident. It's really hard, isn't it, to shout about your sustainable credentials if you've never actually seen seen um, where almonds are grown. So the fact that the ABC facilitates that, I think is really, really powerful. It's really, really useful, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that translates to consumers as well. When you're kind of transparent through the supply chain and you know exactly what's going on, consumers will have more faith in the product that is being sold to them. Yeah, spot on, spot on. I mean, we spoke about Paul, we spoke about this with Paul, didn't we, um, a while ago. Whether consumers might even actually be willing to part with more cash because they they, they, they trust your brand and they trust your transparency um, is another question. Um, I think they probably will. And I think, as, as, as Marie said, fantastic to speak to Harbinder and to Marie. We also got to speak to David Green, who's executive director of the US Sustainability Alliance. Now, the USSA helped coordinate my trip to Louisiana just before Christmas. So it was an absolute pleasure to speak to David and um, to get his perspective on sustainable agriculture and also the messaging um, around agriculture, particularly in the US, which, as you'll hear, we think gets a hard time sometimes. So let's hear what David had to say. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us this afternoon or this morning. I suppose a good place to start would be explaining to our listeners what the USSA is all about and what it does. Well, in a nutshell, it is what it says, United States Sustainability Alliance. It's basically an alliance of all the major food, farming, fishery, forestry and related agricultural uh, associations uh, based in the United States, obviously. All of them are really primarily focused on exporting their products uh, worldwide and uh, particularly to the European Union. The USSA in many ways came about because of the increasing issue or demands for sustainability in food production. US agriculture for many, many years has been involved in conservation practices, um, the word sustainability was more frequently used in Europe, for example, than in the US. So when sustainability started to become part of the conversation from European customers, we were a little bit taken aback, as it were, because we thought, well, sustainability or conservation, what's the difference between the two? So several of the associations who are members at, the, at this time began in 2013 to look to ways to in gauge in the conversation of sustainability to find out what European customers really wanted and what consumers in Europe really wanted as well. The associations who are members of USA are all what they call 
U.S. Department of Agriculture cooperators. That's basically their not-for-profit associations that represent those main farming organizations. So currently there are 24 organizations. They range from the commodity groups such as soy, corn, uh, wheat, to specialist groups, Alaska Seafood, the Organic Trade Association, the uh, Intertribal Agricultural Council, uh, which is a recent member, to uh, North Carolina Sweet Potatoes. And really what uh, we set out to do, going back to 2014, was to find out uh, what customers in Europe really wanted and what they were really talking about sustainability, but also importantly, to correct some of the almost myths or misperceptions about U.S. farming, U.S. agriculture and food production in general, of which there were many. I come from Europe originally from Ireland, and uh, I expected when we talked to uh, European stakeholders that there would be a certain bias, misinformation about U.S. farming. But I really was surprised at how limited the knowledge was, even in the food supply chain, about the reality of U.S. agriculture. And David, US you mentioned production. perceptions of the U.S. farming system just then. Would you say that it is unfairly perceived in today's world? Yeah, I think it is unfair. Um, and in some ways, that's uh, almost an unfair answer, because uh, if you're not engaged, if you're not face to face with what goes on in the reality of another country, such as the United States, it's very hard to uh, escape some of the media headlines, some of the uh, campaigns uh, against U.S. agriculture. And it works both ways. I mean, one of the advantages that our members have had is being engaged in the European marketplace. And when we have uh, had several outreach missions where we go over to talk to various stakeholders and government officials in Europe and bring our members with them, there's a learning experience on both sides. I worked for uh, many years with the US soy industry, for example, on quite a controversial issue, uh, genetically engineered uh, soybeans. And we made a point of bringing our farmer leaders to Europe to explain why they used this technology, which was so controversial in Europe, yet was seen as one of the best technologies ever to come on soy farms in, in recent memory. What our farmers also learned was how controversial this particular technology was in Europe. And for them, it was a very good learning experience to realize that even though the technology was safe, proven safe, proven tremendous benefits to the farmer, when you come up against a lot of uh, concerns driven by media, by NGOs, whatever the, the driving force is, that's still a reality for consumers. So for our farmers, it was a two-way process in the learning and information exchange way. And I think that part of the, uh, the, the remit for USSA is to explain what happens on the ground in US farming and uh, seafood harvesting, as well as learn from uh, you know, our stakeholders and our interlocutors in Europe what their issues and their problems are. I mean, sustainability is... Uh, it's a bit of a, has been for some years, a bit of a, a catchphrase or a buzzword. And it's, it's all well, well and good to talk about it. But what are we talking about? There's so many definitions and the, the approach in the US is very different from Europe. And I think that's where the uh, context and information has to be understood from both sides. It's one thing to get information and it's another thing to get the context. And just going back to the, the GMO issue, you know, the information 
the European customers, consumers, whatever had was, this is genetically engineered products produced by Americans and shipped over here. The context in American farms was, as I said a few minutes ago, this is the greatest technology has come on our farm. We just don't willy-nilly adopt it, but it's something we look at, we try and test it and find that it works. David, I want to drill down into what you've said there, because I think it's really interesting. I was lucky enough to visit Louisiana um, with the USSA in 2022, and I've never been on many, I've not been on many American farms, so I suppose the experience was new for me, and I was looking at it with quite fresh eyes. But why do you think there is that unfair or perceived unfair perception of US farms? Why do you think that some producers or retailers in Europe do have those views about US agriculture? I think this goes back to not really understanding the context. And this one of my sort of pet phrases, context and information. If you've got information, you've got to apply the context. When we started the USSA, one of the first things we did is we talked to about 70 stakeholders in Germany and the United Kingdom and also some of the Brussels-based food and agriculture and industry associations. And overwhelmingly, the, the, the mindset was that US agriculture was big corporate farms. Farmers were too quick to use technologies, too quick to use lots of chemicals. Um, and the reality is very different. I mean, 98% of America's farms are family owned. They're family run. They might be companies, uh, no different than some uh, farm operations in Europe, set up for whatever reason, tax reasons or family legacy reasons. But 98% of farms in the United States are family run. And that represents 2% of the work, US workforce. So that's the reality on the ground. The average farm in the United States is somewhere in the region of 350 acres. I know many farmers with what are basically small farms of 900 acres. That might be large in some European contexts, but that will be a farmer and his wife or son and father often very much run as a family. Absolutely. As you say, that's that stuck out to me when we were researching this podcast. It's the vast majority of US farms are family owned and they're multi-generational. They've been handed down from mother and father to son and daughter several times. With that in mind, have you come across some reluctance from some communities in adopting new methods? You said there that some American farmers are great advocates and users of technology. Have you noticed that some perhaps aren't and, and uh, I hate to use this phrase, stuck in their ways? I haven't come across any, and I think uh, American farmers are really no different from farmers anywhere in the world. And uh, I speak as a farmer. I farmed in, in Ireland for 10 years. Farmers want to produce better. They want to produce more. That's their livelihood. They will use whatever technology, whatever process that comes along, if it works. If it's safe, they try and test it, and if it works, then it will be used. And we're talking about, you know, aubergine farmers in Bangladesh who use and have adopted genetically modified uh, aubergine. It cuts down their chemical use. These are guys with maybe half a hectare. If it didn't work, they wouldn't use it. It's the same with um, American farmers when the genetically engineered soybeans first came out. Most of the farmers that I worked with know tried maybe a quarter of their acreage to it. They weren't sure, they weren't necessarily going to go with all the hype that this was a great technology. Most of the farmers had tried for the first year, if it worked, good, second year, 
And within a very short space of time, we're up at 90% adoption of that technology. Why? Because it worked. And I think that's the same for farmers anywhere. Same in Europe, same in Asia, South America. If a technology works, it will get used. That really chimes with something that the um, Hardwick said yesterday, David, when we spoke to Mead and Marshall, I don't know if you know, from the Hardwick plantation. And they said that. They said the majority of innovation in farming is born out of the need to survive and the need to adapt to, to become more productive, more efficient, and therefore to survive sometimes until the next harvest. The other thing that they mentioned, which is something that I heard several times in Louisiana, is the right and wrong way for farmers to be introduced to new technology or new methods. And it seems to me, what I took from visiting Louisiana was that the wrong way was to turn up in the metaphorical government pickup truck and mandate what you should and shouldn't be doing on a farm. And the right way is probably something a bit softer. Is that something that the USSA agrees with? And is that something that the USSA strives to do? Yeah, very, very much so. I think, um, you know, too heavy legislation uh, really stymies innovation. And, uh, you know, go back to the many, many visits that I've done in Europe with American farmers across the supply chain of government officials and everybody else. When we met farmers in Europe, no matter which country, and uh, universally, they would like to have had access to uh, biotech crops, genetically engineered crops. A very good farmer friend of mine in Brazil last week hosted 34 farmers from Germany. Now this farmer in Brazil is a large scale uh, soybean producer uh, using genetically modified soybeans. Every single farmer that was there said they really wished they could use this technology. Unfortunately, the technology has been stymied in Europe through uh, excessively unworkable legislation. It's, it's claimed to be very stringent. It is stringent. And everybody wants string, stringent legislation when it comes to foodstuffs, but it has to be workable. And that's what's, uh, that's what's uh, failed European farmers. So any technology coming along, any innovation, and we've seen a lot more interest in, in Europe on precision agriculture has adopted a lot of American farms. Yes, it's expensive to put in place, but it comes back to the whole sustainability drive that when you can uh, monitor and apply your fertilizer, your nutrients, your water at, at a micro level, knowing which part of the soil needs more water because this is all computed into uh, machinery com computer systems, and that gets the nutrients and gets the water that's needed in that particular spot. David, even though technology has come so far, there are still some things that are incredibly hard to prepare for. We've read recently about the drought in California. Do you think US consumers and producers are aware enough about how climate change is going to affect their food supply? That's a good question. And I think you know, everybody's very aware of how the change in climate is affecting, affecting food supply. Uh, we've seen the droughts in California. I, I would say droughts in California are not a new thing. That's an ongoing issue. But when it affects into the Midwest, into the uh, maize and soybean growing areas as well. Also, this past year, we've seen excessive rainfall in many parts of the world. Funny, pity it didn't sort of match up with where, where there's a drought. But just, um, just this week, in fact, yesterday, sorry, I think it was, that the U.S. Department of Agriculture announced uh, yet another water conservation program. This is a $25 million program for uh, the western, uh, western part of the United States looking to have better water management processes for farmers 
better conservation programs for uh, water retention and so on. So uh, if we take one of our members, the Almond Board of California, several years ago during a California drought, it was getting a lot of very negative publicity about the amount of water taken to produce a kernel of, of uh, almonds. It has uh, carried out an extensive and very successful um, water conservation program. So it's uh, got a figure somewhere here. You know, it's been able to reduce its uh, water use per pound of almonds by 33% over the last five years. So, yeah, there's a, a great deal of interest, a great deal of looking at new ways to conserve, you know, water and to use it in the best way. And I, I go back to the micro-irrigation that I mentioned. You know, it's not a question now of great water spindles pouring out, you know, hundreds of gallons of water. You know, increasingly now with micro-irrigation, you can direct the water to where the plant needs it and in that particular part of the soil uh, field, sorry, part of the field that is needed. Absolutely. I mean, I'm always impressed by the level of technology that, that we develop in our sector. It, it's never ending and it always seems to solve the next problem. In that situation we've just discussed, take California, take the whole US, take Europe. Things are getting tougher, both climate-wise and economically. Looking towards that latter point especially, what takes priority when things get tough? Because this is something that we've discussed at New Food quite a lot over the last few months. As consumer budgets tighten as margins narrow do you think that sustainability begins to fall by the wayside a little bit really good question very topical i mean the war in ukraine certainly focused everyone's mind on food security uh, when you have uh, you know a huge producer of corn or maize ukraine suddenly that's not readily available the impact that had uh, not just in supply but on people's thinking European Commission has got its very ambitious uh, green uh, green deal, the farm to fork uh, agenda, very ambitious, looking at reducing uh, inputs, reducing fertilizer use, reducing pesticide use. This is all well and good, but food has to be produced. And uh, I think when times get hard economically, people still have to eat. And when you put that in the context of the growing world population, I, I took a look before we came online, We've been talking for just over 10 minutes. And in that time, 540 people were deemed to have been added to the world population, added to the world population. That's almost one, one a second. And um, if you take that kind of statistic, that's a bit more meaningful to me than 10 minutes. We've had 540 people. Sorry, it's probably now 545 added to the world population. They all need to be fed. When I hear talks about 10 billion people by 2050 or whatever, that, that's a statistic that means nothing. But um, 540 people, you only have to be sitting in a conference room talking for 10 minutes to find that that room would be filled. Sorry, maybe I'm going off topic here. No, no, it's they're, they're starting stats, David. Yeah. And, you know, what we're seeing coming back to just production in general, another statistic that I came across recently Currently, the average American farmer produces enough food to feed 155 people. In 1960, it was 26. What does that come down from? It comes down from innovation, new technologies, farming better, improving everything to do with the farm, whether it's soil health, water conservation, uh, new technologies. We're going to need to produce more with less. 
there's less farmland every year. Um, I, I lived in the United States for 26 years on a small farm outside of Washington, D.C., and I used to drive past uh, a 50-acre field which uh, our neighbour planted to soybeans, corn, wheat on, uh, on rotation. Last year, uh, I was out visiting. I moved back to the U.K. I was out visiting. That field has gone, and houses were being built on it. So that's 50 acres of food production is gone and is not coming back. So the pressure on farmable land, not just in the United States, but globally, is another driver in how are we going to produce more from less. David, I know we've perhaps spoken about a few already, but what are the main issues that are keeping the USSA awake at night? <laughs> yeah, gosh, <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. You know, in a sort of broad way, maybe coming back to what, what, I, what I just said, how are we going to produce more from less? Um, I think the thing that, that personally I find both frustrating, uh, it's going back to what I said earlier, is the misperceptions there are about food production, not just American food production, but food production in general, and the distrust in science and technology. Those are the things I think that, are, are, um, that, that bother me most and how to get across uh, in fact, such going back to genetically engineered crops, I mean, these have been tested much more rigorously than many other technologies, go through a much more demanding process than many other technologies, including human medicine. And yet it's pilloried and stymied and has uh, all sorts of connotations, frankenfoods and so on. Somehow we have to get back to trusting in the science that's, uh, that's guiding our farm and food production. That's the sort of thing that, that, uh, that bothers me most. And it, it comes, you know, corollary to, corollary to that is coming back to this understanding what is happening, understanding the context of food production, even in your own country, understanding what farmers do, how they do it and why they do it. So those, those, that, that understanding of the information you get and applying it to a better uh, appreciation of the context is what I'd like to see more of. David, last one from me, because we must give you uh, your time back. Where do you see the food industry in five years' time when it comes to sustainability? Are, are you as optimistic as, as I am about our industry? Or are you going to pour some cynical cold water on a, our buoyancy and say, no, we're miles off and it's all going to be a disaster? Or are you going to finish on a high and say, do you know what, Josh, we're bang on track and it's all going to be fine? Yeah. Oh, I'll conserve pouring cold water <laughs> for better use. No, I would be optimistic. I think leaving aside all the maybe negative things there's been about food production, whether it's American or, or European and you know, what's the best way of doing it? What's the best way of, of demonstrating sustainability? Is it a certification uh, process that's required by many European customers? Or is it ongoing improvement or sustainable sourcing? What's the way of showing that food uh, production is, is safe and sustainable? So I, I feel that the conversation, yes, it's opened up a lot of Pandora's boxes that, uh, you know, have required addressing and required answers. So I, I think that conversation is great that it has opened up. I see the engagement we have had with USSA when we meet with European stakeholders. We, you know, pre-COVID and since COVID, we did carry out, you know, a number of uh, roundtable meetings or workshop meetings, and we would invite 
you know, stakeholders, government officials, whatever, in, in the several, I think we've covered about six or seven different countries in Europe, the uptake from the uh, participants was terrific. And yes, we as USA want to come over and say, look, this is how we are producing sustainable food. Yeah, please buy more. Thank you. But also, you know, what are the issues that you are facing in your marketplace? Because sustainability is it's, it's a global issue. And there are macro concerns that will affect both our customers in Europe and ourselves. And perhaps there's some way, the more we understand each other, of finding you know, a, a more global solution, if you will, or at least a, a, a global way forward. Lots of talk about farm to fork, prescriptive legislation coming in, et cetera. Very different in the US, which is more a voluntary approach. So there has to be more of a harmonization of how we look at this issue. And I think we're seeing that. I think we're seeing a change from some of the, the, the really strict demands for certification into looking at, well, what are the outcomes we want against the impact of that production? I think that's a great place to end, David. Thank you so much for your time and for your insight. And that was the messaging aspect. And the, the, the innovation that's happening in the US, and it's something we spoke about with the hardware exam with David, but how often do we speak to people about agriculture and you get the kind of eye roll or you get the pause and you know what people are thinking, especially when it comes to the US and, and certain parts of the US, you know what they're thinking and you know the picture they've painted in their mind about US farmers and it just isn't true. Why do you think there is such like a, a tainted picture of them though, Josh? Where do you think this has come from? I don't know. I don't know. I think that there is a minority that perhaps doesn't give the correct amount of credence to climate change. And they probably are the loudest voices and that informs the world. I don't think the 45th president of the United States helped, if I'm honest, in that respect. I don't think his necessarily his opinions and the way they were voiced were particularly conducive. Although some really great work in agriculture and in food was done under his under his administration, so that's maybe a, a coincidence rather than a, a correlation, but who knows. So I, to answer your question, I don't know, I don't know, but I just know that it's so far from the truth. And what the USA is doing, which David obviously said is a key part of their purpose, is bringing people like me, Europeans, to the US to forge relationships, to see what's happening, and to share knowledge. That, I thought that was really important too. I think David said that it's the most isolated industry in the world or something along those lines. Um, you farm alone, it's an echo chamber. You only speak to people that, or I say only, you mainly speak to people that work within a similar area, similar trade. You often are alone, both physically and, and mentally, because only you understand what's going on in your farm. Very easy to get caught up, I suppose, in, in, in what's going on in your I was about to say small corner of the world. I mean, it isn't small, small corner when you go to some of these farms in the US. Just sharing that knowledge, bringing people from Europe, farms, farmers from Italy, from Germany, from France, to Louisiana, to Nebraska, to Idaho, to Iowa, to share knowledge. Look, what are you doing? What are you doing? Well, over here, we do something like this. Well, actually here, that doesn't quite work, but we do this. How important is that? I know. And all I can really say is when you came back from your trip from Louisiana, you had nothing but good things to say about the work that they were doing. So I think getting the public or consumers just to understand how much effort is going into the work they do. And it's not actually what like preconceptions might be. 
No, exactly. And that's, I suppose, where the USA does come in because that's not the fault of consumers. That's the fault of our industry. If we don't present the right message and tell the right story, that's absolutely our fault. I don't even think it's necessarily just consumers. I think it's other people within the food industry too. The messaging just seems to be very, very strange. But yeah, I loved speaking to David. I thought it was really, really interesting. I was, as you say, so impressed when I went to Louisiana. And the other thing that struck me, I don't know if I've told you the story, I think I might have done, but just standing in the Hardwick's equipment shed and looking at Combine Harvest is worth millions and millions of pounds. But I'm a city boy. I've got no idea how much farm equipment costs, but I didn't think it would be like in the millions. It just goes to show you that this is not some two-bit operation with like a rusty plow and a couple of guys doing the best they can. It's a serious, serious business. I think most people in the industry understand that. Whether consumers do, I'm not sure. I mean, they've got tractors that can map out the entire farm via GPS and work out where... Um, like which plots on the field need fertiliser the most at that specific point in time using measurements. It's incredible. It's space age stuff. I know. And also the fact that um, farmers are willing to invest that much money into equipment, like you say, it's not cheap. So they're putting a lot on the line just to farm in ways that are more sustainable and ways that they know their farm's going to be around for generations to come. It just shows how much their livelihood means to them. And that I think actually is the key point, isn't it? It's about that making sure the land is there for people afterwards. Some of the people I spoke to in Louisiana, some of the farmers that we spoke to, when you actually mentioned the word climate change, there was some suspicion. There was some, well, we're not quite sure if it's man-made or not, whether it's natural. There was that aspect of the debate, which surprised me because of some of the things that they're doing and some of the incredible um, work that they're doing actually greatly aids the fight against climate change. But anyway, that's by the by. The message that was consistent from everyone that I met was, no, we're doing this so that our sons and daughters can make use of the land just as we made use of it from our mum and dad, our our parents. It's all about land stewardship. There is a real sense of feeling about land, especially, I think especially in the US. That might not be true. That might not be fair. I was going to say, that's not really something that you see as much in the UK. I'm sure, I'm sure it still exists with UK farmers, but it was over, you like seem to say, when you were in the US, that that was really their drive to pass it down to generations to come. Yeah, I mean, US listeners, I'm sure, will disagree, but I do think there is a real sense of a real sense of land being important to Americans, perhaps more than Europeans. But like I said... That's a wild opinion. That probably isn't true if you speak to a farmer. Um, yeah, we have we have no statista to back this one up. No, no. I mean, I'm sat in the office and I can see two, three farms up from this window. I'm sure they feel very strongly about their land too. Um, but it is about stewardship. I mean, what we haven't mentioned is the work the Hardwicks have done. We might have mentioned it briefly. The work the Hardwicks have done with the NRCS in terms of conservation, protecting um, wetlands, which is a Louisiana-specific habitat, um, and certain certain species of tree, which I can't remember, unfortunately. And the federal government actually buys land from farmers and says, OK, we'll buy this land from you, don't touch it, and let, let it grow. A similar scheme was undertaken in the UK, the rewilding scheme. Don't think it quite went as well as this is going, but you can read about that in New Food. We've written quite a lot about it. There is a real pride in not just what's grown on the land, but what the land represents. You heard how pleased the Hardicks were speaking about their black bears. We discussed it at length earlier in the podcast. And that's, that's I suppose, what David was getting at. It's all about land stewardship, passing it on, making sure that the next generation after ours can use it and can gain resources from it. So 
it's a really interesting dichotomy because like I said, there are some people that are still questioning the validity of climate change, which I found really interesting. What they're doing really, really supports the fight against it. But I don't think they're necessarily doing it for that. I think they're doing it to make sure the land is farmable for generations to come. Do you see what I mean? It's a really, really interesting mix. Yeah, so a greener planet ultimately is just a byproduct of them wanting the farm to still be there for their family in the future. I think so, I think so. And I'm, I'm just so it's clear, I'm not talking about the Hardwicks here because that's certainly not the vibe I got from their farm at all. And I think they're doing wonderful work. But some other places that we visited, yeah, I think it is almost a byproduct. But does it matter? That's what I, I'm getting at. Does it matter? If the end result's the same, does it matter? It's a hard one. Yeah, it is a hard one. But you'd like to think that people are making sustainable changes with kind of the planet in mind rather than just kind of like a small town, like psychology behind it. But you're right. At the end of the day, if, if it has the same result, who are we to judge what their motives, motivations are? No, exactly. I think, yeah, I just, I, I, I think it's really interesting. Um, and it's something that I've held in my head for a long time, since I came back, really. Does it matter? Does it really matter which or why someone does something if the result's the same? And I, I, on the one hand, I suppose it does. But when you see the work that's been undertaken there... This could be a broader question, Josh. I feel like this isn't just sustainability now. We need a, um, a philosophy, yeah, a philosopher on the pod. <laughs> We do, we do. But no, David um, just outlined some of the work USSA do there. Really, really interesting and important. And yeah, I was just so taken aback by what I saw out in Louisiana. Um, so pleased as well to be given the opportunity. And I think it's really important that people, city boys from London like me, I was going to say inner city London, then that makes it out to be, yeah, important, I think. No, I really enjoyed it. I found the interviews really fascinating. And do you know what David said that really summed it up and made made me feel quite good? He said that it's podcasts like this that are so important about getting the message out there and communicating with even more people about what is actually going on in the sustainable farming industry. Oh, yeah, well, that's always nice to hear, isn't it? So, yeah, absolute pleasure to speak to the Hardwicks. Really amazing to speak to Harbinder and to Marie earlier in the episode. And yeah, David just put the cherry on top of the cake, didn't he? Some really, really great points. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much to Grace for persevering for a bout of COVID to bring in this episode. You've been listening to Food To Go, brought to you this episode. I was going to say this week, Grace, but we're not quite that good, are we? We'll be back very soon with some more special episodes. Um, Grace, what have we got coming up? We've got a bit on education, haven't we? We're going back to school. And we're going back on the farm as well after that because I spoke to a dairy farmer in Wisconsin, which was just a wonderful conversation. So yeah, we've got loads coming up, so stay tuned. And if you want to read more about my trips and travel in Louisiana, if you're not absolutely sick of me going on about it, you can visit New Food and read some of the stuff I've written on there because um, yeah, it was a great trip. And I think the people that I spoke to were fascinating. So stay tuned for even more videos coming out from that trip in the next few weeks. And we will see you very soon. Thank you so much for listening.